I'm Tom Shapiro, and with me as always... Hello, I'm Sean Edry. No cures, no wars, no love. <laughs> this is a comic book podcast brought to you by the fine folks at Seaport, Seaport.org, the best online and initial source for comic books, news, reviews, and critiques. Buy their books, read their articles, watch their movies. And don't forget, Seaport is also on Patreon. Support smart criticism in comics. Shall we go on straight to the news? Yes. Uh, movie news? Let's start with that, sure. So there's a new Logan trailer out. Yep. And I have to be honest with you, I can be very, very skeptical when it comes to trailers. Trailers deceive by their nature. We know this. It doesn't come as any surprise. I do have to say that despite my... I mean, you know that I don't like Wolverine. You know that the, I'm The not movie a, series. You're not a, like an no, anti-Wolverineer. I'm not a fan of the character either. Mm. Like, you remember when we reviewed uh, The Death of Wolverine, I yeah. was not in tears being like, Oh, God, Logan, don't leave us. No, we can do without him. But... This one is working for me, and I'm not sure what it is. There's something about the premise of this film, as it's been described, that is appealing to me, even though it's doing the thing that I have found so annoying about the X-Men films in general, which is this hyper-focus on Wolverine. Right? It's doing I, the other thing that's so annoying about the X-Men movies, which is mingling with the timeline again. That I don't care about so much. Timeline... I mean, listen, 20 years of reading X-Men, I'm immune to time shenanigans. It's fine. It is absolutely fine. But the way that the visual style is coming across here, like, they're going for some sort of... A lo-fi road trip movie. Lo-fi... It's giving me shades of Fury Road, but without the giant storms. Uh, It's more like The Road, just The Road, not Fury Road. Yeah, yeah, something like that. And Patrick Stewart's in it, so I always have time for him anyway. I don't know. The concept of doing Old Man Logan at the time when they first announced it seemed ridiculous to me. Even if you trim back the excess of Mark Miller being Mark Miller. From the trailer, it doesn't... You know, it it takes the name and the general idea of he's an old man now and yeah. no, nothing else. Just like yeah. the Age of Ultron movie, which wasn't at all, thank heavens, like the Age of Ultron comic. I actually think the Age of Ultron comic came after the movie. No, 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 no. In it that came case. before. It came before. Did and it? it? And it was... I know you don't like the movie. The comic was terrible in several degrees. Wait, are you saying that an event comic for Marvel was terrible? Impossible. It a Brian be. Bendis event comic from Marvel? A Brian Bendis event comic on top of everything else. Woo. So, um, uh, it looks okay, but like you said, yeah. it's the, uh, we had two Wolverine movies. They were not very good. Mm. Uh, all of the X-Men movies, to me, since X-Men 2, were various level of bad to mediocre. I know everybody liked First Class. I'm like, it's, it's fine. It's, I... I guess it's the the problem with the X Men films in general is I think that because of where it's positioned historically, because of where it started from, and the mindset that was dominant at the time, expecting greatness from them from them might be hoping for too much, right? When, like when I go to see an X Men movie, I I just want some level of entertainment. It doesn't have to be deep. It doesn't have to be coherent. It doesn't even necessarily have to make sense in terms of its own internal logic because. A, it's X-Men. We're past that. Like, even in the comics, we're past that. B, uh, if they're not constantly 
like up Wolverine's junk, I think it's it's all right, you know. So first class, I I liked. I thought it was okay. Uh, Days of Future Past, I enjoyed. Because I, I thought had... it was terrible. Well, I know, I know, but we've talked about that in yes. the past. Now the thing with with Logan, um, because they have said, I mean, they say this every movie, but they're like, it's the last time Hugh Jackman will be Wolverine. Fine, I'll believe that when I see it. But the way that they are constructing the story as taking it away from all of the things that have bogged the last X-Men film down, right? The fact that Apocalypse was such a huge disappointment because by that point it really was just superficial. It was all surface. If you're narrowing this down to a core cast of three and you're doing a road trip story, I feel like that's enough of a paradigm shift that I, I will go see this. I am genuinely interested so okay. we'll see. We'll see what happens with it. Uh, another, yeah, another trailer that I found very interesting is the trailer for Powerless. Now I know you're not into like keeping up to date with TV, especially. I, I especially, know I know enough about Powerless to know that it's been like rebranded and redone because they yeah. didn't like the original version, so they do it. They they're not, now doing it as more like an office comedy thing, which. This is completely different from the original conception. Well, the original concept was just damage control. I mean, that's what it was. That's, not, that's, not, that's not a bad concept, to be fair. Damage control no, is a great idea. But it does belong to Marvel, so... Mm. Well, you know, you can't trademark a concept. Just oh, really? Ask, <laughs> just, just ask the 12, the dozen Superman clones that are running right now in the Marvel Universe. You have yeah, your but... Hyperions, your Blue Marvels, your Gladiators, whatever... But I think if you look at their cinematic and television output, DC are trying very, very hard and they're being very, very conscious of being perceived as following Marvel's lead on anything. That's not how they want to make an impression. And I can't blame them. Like, I can understand the mindset that says, if we are doing something and the first thing everyone says is it's damage control, maybe what we need to do is find a different angle for this. Whose who's, who's station is uh, showing Powerless? Is it WB I, or...? No, no, no. I'm pretty sure it's NBC. Oh. Now, okay. the thing about Powerless is they have retooled it into an office comedy set in Wayne Enterprises. Yeah. So it's... And the cast seems really, really good. Alan Tudyk is in it. Um, Danny Pudi, who played Abbott on Community, is a fantastic actor. The teaser uh, itself is... Cheap. It's very cheap looking. I is yeah. It, I looked at it, and this is a YouTube skit. No, it's a serious <laughs> commercial for a serious, no, not a serious, like a comedy TV show, but like a yeah. big station TV show. It doesn't look like it. It looked like something you would find on a early two thousands YouTube channel. It looks like The Office. But here's uh, the thing. I feel like I could be into that because. If there's one thing I'm well and truly sick of by this point, it's the grand spectacle. Because DC on the TV shows, right, I lost touch with it precisely when they were going for, let's have all the big flashy effects and let's look super expensive and let's be all of this, all of this craziness, right? And the movies too have been visually very interesting to some people, but dry as hell. So the idea of... Oscar nominated Suicide Squad. Suicide Squad. Please tell me they were not... You know what? For 2016, that makes sense because, uh, you know, they were probably nominated for lighting and there was no light. It was that kind of year. (laughs) 
Not one light in that entire movie, but it was nominated for light. I think it was Probably. nominated for special effects, which is odd because the special effects were boring garbage. and terrible. They were garbage. Are you kidding yeah. me? But yeah. okay, fine. 2016 is the year of inversions. We'll just let that slide. Uh, so, again, like there's something about the concept. It's similar to Logan now that I think about it. What these two are doing is they're trying to portray a particular angle of a very, very, very well-tread universe, right? I mean, there are four superhero DC TV shows right now on the CW and two more coming with the animated series. There's a lot of the DCU that focuses on the superheroes and the special effects and all that. If what they want to do with Powerless, similar to what they want to do with Logan, is just strip all of that away and try something new, at the very least, I'm intrigued because I could not be more bored with the status quo. You know what I mean? I could not be more disinterested in, let's see another superhero with fake-looking CGI doing all of this ridiculous crap. It's everywhere now. It's an interesting concept, but the, if the teaser is meant to make me interested, it mostly just makes me embarrassed for them because, again, invest a little. This is your first, your big step through the door, and it's so average, cheap-looking, and even the idea of the skin of it's uh, an anti-Joker cure for you know, sold for the people of Gotham. It's just, it's an expected joke. It's, there's nothing original about it. It is, but I think it's also a joke that DC... I mean, one of the things that we have said so often about DC in particular, like now, is that one of their problems is they can't really laugh about themselves, right? Well, the mo- the movies. The TV show, I think, can laugh about themselves. Not anymore. I mean, it used to be the case that the Flash... I mean, again, this is only my experience, right? It used to be the case that the Flash could at least joke at itself. You would not go to Arrow for humor, right? Well, but. I wouldn't go for to Arrow for anything, but that's, <laughs> that's just me. But for, but for humor in particular. Mm-hmm. And The Flash used to be able to laugh at itself, and then everything became dark timelines, and grit, and dead people everywhere, and misery, and all Grant Gustin does anymore is cry and cry and cry. So it's like the real world. Well, I, I, I don't know about that. You know, we, we, we kept complaining about how realism isn't just being dark all the time, and we were proving wrong. It is. Well, but that might explain why I'm more open to this than I think I normally would be, right? Like, I find myself more open to it just because it's willing to at least try to get me to crack a smile. Okay. I'll, I'll take it. I'll try it, you know? Speaking about cracking a smile, uh, yeah. Phil Lord and Chris Miller of Lego Movie and 21 Jump Street Remake fame are doing a Spider-Man animated movie for Sony, which we knew about. Mm-hmm. What we didn't know is that they're doing a Miles Morales movie. I like that. Well, I it's like going to be a huge success because it seems those people have like the Midas touch. Everything they do turns into gold both financially and critically, including stuff that shouldn't be possible. Nobody wanted the Lego movie, and it was Oscar-nominated. Nobody won 21 Jump Street, and it was, and it's considered one of the best comedies of the last five years. So Yeah. And, you know, the fact that they're going with Miles Morales, I think, is interesting, because mm. this is happening around the time that they're starting the really big promotional push for Tom Holland, right? For Peter yeah. Parker. It does make me wonder if this is supposed to be canonical or a standalone. No, I assume not. 
Is this MCU material? I don't think so because there's also a new Spider-Man animated TV sh- show coming up. They're finishing up with Ultimate Spider-Man and they already announced that both Spider-Gwen and Miles Morales will be mm. major players in that series. They're not okay. going to be guest stars, they're going to be part of the main cast. Okay, so if nothing else, I guess I, I like the news because of the idea that Miles Morales is getting more media exposure. Mm. For a while there, it didn't seem like he was quite managing the push. I know that he appeared in Ultimate Spider-Man. Yeah, yeah, times. he was a guest in like two episodes. Yeah, and he, he was voiced by Donald Glover, which was a big deal. And it, it didn't quite do enough, I think. Now I'm glad that they Marvel seemed to be... I'm not sure if this is Marvel or oh, Sony. No, no, it's, it's Sony. I think Sony knows that as far as the public is concerned... Even though it's a partnership, Tom Holland is Marvel's Spider-Man, right? And they're like setting up their own version. They're saying, "But well, see, I could we, we'll have that. the money from it, but we also want people to know that this is our Spider-Man." But see, if that ends up being a compromise, like an actual thing, where the MCU version is Peter Parker and the Sony version is Miles Morales. That could solve so many problems. If they had done that with Amazing Spider-Man... I mean, you know, I love Andrew Garfield. I really do think he's an amazing actor. But if that had been Miles Morales, they might have avoided the train crash at the end. You know? It could have at least... These movies were bad enough anyway. I don't think anything would have saved them. It would have made them more interesting. I I think it would have maybe been perceived as, why are we rebooting... Spider-Man again, right? Why was it another origin story? We saw the Spider-Bite thing happen for the second time in Amazing Spider-Man, and that was not necessary. And I think uh, the movies were bad regardless, sure. But maybe having a different protagonist might have ameliorated some of the sameness that went along with it. I do wonder how they will do the origin story. Is he just the Spider-Man of that universe, or are they going to do him as the legacy character and start with there's this old Spider-Man and he dies and Miles Morales is taking up the the costume. That's an interesting question. I don't think they would because, ever acknowledge... Because the big part of Miles' character arc is that he is the yeah. new Spider-Man. He's not just the first guy who calls himself Spider-Man. And if you just start with this is Miles Morales, he gets his powers, now he's Spider-Man, you lose yeah. something of it? See, I part of the problem here is that I don't know how that actually happened and what happened afterwards in Ultimate. As far as I remember, Peter Parker dies at some point, yeah. Miles Morales becomes... But then he comes back, doesn't he? Um, he would have I, had I've to. I've read like the first 15 issues of the Miles Morales comics. Which, they were pretty good. And he doesn't come back in them. I think I read later that either he came back or a clone came back or something probably, like that. Probably. Probably. I, I would not be surprised, but, right? But you know, it's a big... It, the big idea of the character is that he is a legacy character. Yeah. And he struggles with the idea that people have certain notions about Spider-Man and that he doesn't fit these notions. Yeah. Most significant in this announcement was that they didn't mention Peter Parker at all, right? So I I know that tampering with the origin story might be a little complicated because he is a legacy character, but at the same time... Because he's a legacy character whose legacy, like the the person that he inherited it from is still around now in terms of the post-Secret Wars reboot, it's sort of, he's the other Spider-Man, right? Yeah. So if if they're making this movie and it's just Miles Morales, that's a good thing. 
even if it mucks with the formula, even if it mucks with established canon, if you take Peter Parker out of the equation, you at least give Miles Morales a chance to be defined on his own terms and not by... He's the guy who's Spider-Man, but not the Spider-Man, because yeah. Peter Parker is still here. I, it can work. Like The Justice League cartoon had Wally West as the Flash without touching on the, on the idea that he's a legacy character at all. Right. He was so just he, the Flash. It could be done. Yeah. So we'll see how it goes. Yeah. Uh, comics news? Comics news. Sean, take it away. And oh, don't shout. Lord. Okay. okay. <laughs> I'm going to find my zen place. No, no, no. You know what? I'm not actually pissed off. But I do get to say I told you so. I get to say to everybody, every single person who bought the DC Rebirth line of we're going to hold the line at two ninety nine and we're committed to that and we're going to make it work. We're, we're holding show, the line. The Magino line. Oh, yeah. It's a wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey ball. That's the, that's the line that it is, right? And I warned you guys. I told you that DC cannot be trusted when they make statements like that. Dan DiDio cannot be taken at his word for anything. We I tried told our listeners the news. I'm building up to it. Ah, okay. <laughs> you know? okay. Yeah, because okay. I was there right at the beginning when they said 299. I said, give them six months. Has it even been six months since Rebirth? Yeah, yeah, six months at least. Okay, so there you go. DC has upped some of its comics to $4. 15 of their monthly titles, not their bi-monthly ones specifically. Yet. We'll get to the bi-monthly later. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they are no longer holding the line at two ninety nine. Most of the books that are being upped to $4 are titles that are ongoing. So this price hike is happening in the middle of a series, right? It's not mm-hmm. that there's a new number one and that series will now be $4. It's Batman 21 is now $4 and Batman 20 was 3 The titles will arrive with a digital code for the same comic. Yes. Added. Yes, so it, so for those of you who are shopping digital, sucks to be you, uh, and me in this case, because I'm also a digital reader. Are you even buying a DC comic right now? Are you kidding me? No. What What would I be buying? I mean, okay, yeah, Young um, Animal. Rock, but... Rock has Wonder Woman? I don't know. Nope. Nope. And, and I got some stuff to say about that too, but we'll save that for the solicitations. Anyway, so yeah, uh, DC... Went back on their word six months after they went back on their word on DCU. So this surprises, I guess, anybody who thought that this time they meant it. Hmm. I don't know. I, again, like it's it's hard for me to be genuinely mad and to talk about consumer rights and why we put up with this crap and have that spiel again. Is there any publisher who does a two ninety nine comic regularly? Some of I think even most of Image titles right now made the jump back to three ninety nine at this point. Well, part of the issue I think is again the digital comics can be cheaper, right? Image may do price hikes for individual issues, but first of all, they don't do it mid series, as far as I've seen. Second of all, the trades tend to be cheaper. Yeah. So, again, like, I'm willing to accept, okay, you could make the argument that, yes, they have to be $4 because of the price of paper, whatever. Whatever their their requirements are. It takes more money to ship comics from Burbank, whatever the justification is. The fact that DC does nothing to balance that out, right? So if you have to have more expensive 
single issues, why are the digital issues priced the same? Why are the trades more expensive? Right? It, it's all of it. All to, be, the, to be fair, DC trades are considerably cheaper than, say, a Marvel trade or a uh, Dark Horse trade. Well, we're getting to Marvel shortly, right? Because yeah, yeah. D- DC are not the only ones who decided... No, but let's DC just... doesn't do the image-esque $10 for the first trade, no. but they, their, their actual collections are rather cheap. I remember seeing like a 300-page Batman collection for like 20 bucks, which is a good deal. It is a good deal, but... That's not the rule for them, right? Some of those trades are cheaper. Some of them are not. Some of them do tend to be priced ridiculously. So the fact that there's no uniformity and the fact that DC went back on its commitment again does not surprise me at this point. And the only thing that I can say is, again, you know, I I tried to tell you. I, I feel like Dr. Loomis and Halloween, I tried to warn you, you didn't listen. Now Michael Myers is going through your wallets, but... Okay, you know, that's, that is Michael what it Myers is. version of Michael is so much nicer than the movie version. <laughs> if, how, would, if the Halloween reboot was simply Michael Myers just going for people's wallets. And giving them comics, uh, cheap comics in exchange, yeah. But uh, DC are not the only one who have hiked their prices, are they? Well, Marvel hasn't much hiked this double down on being so expensive. Mm. Because Marvel has been doing three ninety nine for... Ages now, four ninety nine for all number one for all big number ones again for at least a year, mm-hmm. and now they're just jumping on it with double sh- with you know double shipping titles. So yes. if you want to read the new X Men titles, first issue five dollars, second issue four dollars, they're both coming the same month. So if you decided to support these titles by buying monthly, you will pay nine dollars without even knowing what you're getting into. Mm, okay, so I I do have one small argument with that and it's not a big one but the idea that you know you're paying nine dollars and you don't know what you're getting into it's being written by colin bunn and the other book is being written by mark guggenheim you know what you're getting now if you like that if you like these writers and you want to support them then i guess you're paying nine dollars a month aren't you but i don't necessarily think that it's you know it's a complete surprise you don't know what you're getting because marvel doesn't have new talent Anybody who's writing for Marvel right now has been writing for Marvel for at least a year, at least two years, long enough for readers to know what they're getting. So that part of it, I I would just back away from, right? Because I do think that at this stage, when someone says Jason Aaron, when someone says Colin Bunn, Mark Guggenheim, Brian Bendis, Al Ewing, you know what's coming, right? Now, it's up to you if you want to spend that amount of money, because I promise you, $9 a month is not worth anything that they will be putting out in any book. Marvel have no titles, not one, that is worth two issues, $9 a month. Unless you're doing it like 40 pages per issue, at least. And and we know that they're not, right? We know that it's still 20... Maybe 22 pages of They're writing of like 30, 30 pages, and then you get 22 pages of comics and like 8 pages of back matter. Exactly. Well, back matter. Ads. Whatever. Sketches. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, that's not something that I'm taking part in. That's not something that I would recommend anyone to see, do. Marvel has writers that I like and artists that I like. They publish stuff that I like in theory. But their approach to publishing this stuff is so... Off-putting that I just I should be I should be the guy who buys every single thing Al Ewing is involved with because I'm an Al Ewing fanatic mm-hmm. and I'm like 
maybe I'll wait for the trade. Yeah. If it's if because I find it on the dollar rack, maybe. Uh, stuff like Moon Knight, which is a very interesting series, but I'm like, I can't I can't afford that. Yeah. Gwenpool, which I think is surprisingly good series. I can't afford that. Yeah. What, what? It's not that good. It's not, you know, your four dollars good. Exactly. And that is a huge part of this as well, right? It's not just the prices that's the issue. It's that, let's be real here, right? Setting aside any existing fan nostalgia or appreciation that we have for particular licenses that Marvel and DC may hold, their books, the quality of the issues that they are putting out are not worth the cover charge. They're not. They're just not. There are no two issues at Marvel that they are putting out in April that would be worth $9 on a monthly basis. You'd be paying almost $100 for a year's worth of content. And that content could literally be two crossover events, three issues of regular story, and then early cancellation. Right? It could, again, look at their track records. What could possibly inspire people to spend that amount of money? And in the end... No, again, there's... It's some, just there's, not worth it. There's it's some, not. No, there's some very good stuff there. There's some stuff that's not for me. And I get why some people fell in love with with the new Moon Knight. They're like, and thank, and thank heaven, 10 issues in, it's out of... it's It hasn't had a crossover yet, so... Look at it this way. There are certain fringe titles. There have always been fringe titles Mm -hmm. at Marvel that don't cross over, right? Uh, uh, Squirrel Girl doesn't cross over. Gwenpool, as far as I know, doesn't cross over. Moon Knight doesn't cross over. Ghost Rider has guest stars now, but it does not seem to be crossing over, right? Okay, so these books, sure, they exist on the fringes. They get to do their own thing for a little while, but then... Still not worth that price. Marvel is publishing as if the competition doesn't exist. As if there, as if it's still the uh, mid '90s, where you had no other companies around publishing good stuff that your readers can go to and see on the rack. But yep. Image owns ten percent of the market right now. You go into a comic book store to buy your monthly, you see a new Image book. Odds are, it's better. It's more interesting. It's cheaper. Yep. So you, you, I, I didn't like the few number one which came out this week. But you know what? Four dollars for fifty-two pages of comics. Yeah. Why wouldn't I get that shot over a $5.22 page Marvel title? Exactly. And not everything Image puts out is successful. No, but, when, no. but when you roll the dice, you have a higher success rate with Image than anything that Marvel and DC put out. Because or Marvel... Boom, or if you're a superhero fan, Valiant. I wouldn't no. go that far. I wouldn't go that far. We'll, we'll get to that. But... um. But the thing with, with Marvel and DC is, you know, you have to recognize the patterns. And I'm saying this, I don't, I'm not saying this as the person who's like, to hell with superheroes and, you know, they're just for kids and we should read grown up stuff now. That's oh, not what I'm no. saying. That you, is you not the perspective. You gave Dr. Strange your best ongoing last year. Well, exactly. You? I am, absolutely. I am not saying this from a perspective of screw superheroes. It's over. It's done. I'm over. I'm there for every Marvel movie. I enjoy the Marvel movies. I, I, I do take pleasure in this genre, but I say at some point, consumers and all of our listeners that are listening to us now, whoever you may be, listen to what I'm saying now. It's not worth it anymore. It's just not. It isn't. And I understand, again, this goes back to that thing that Jude Terra said all those months ago, right? It's not even to the point where when these creators will hold their books 
over your heads and say, if you don't buy the single issues, that they'll get canceled. You have to let them get canceled. You have to let this system crash because it can't go on like this anymore. Nine dollars well, a month I'm, for forty four pages I'm of content. If, if Marvel crashes, they'll probably take the the comic market as we know them with it. Let it die, Tom. Burn it down. Well, if the, if that comic of, market goes, image it. goes, and IDW Look, goes, and boom, nine nine dollars a month, right? Nine dollars a month. Most trades that Image put out, if they're not nine ninety nine, then they're fifteen ninety nine, right? Same for um, for Boom. That's about the price range of their trade paperbacks. The average trade paperback would be comprised of four to six issues. We're just this is math, right? This is not something. It's got nothing to do with quality. It's got nothing to do with quant. It's pure numbers, right? An average trade will have in excess of a hundred pages. Just going by the number of pages per issue. $9 for 40 pages of story for Marvel that may or may not be tie-ins to crossovers where you have to buy other issues to understand the story. Right? It's not. It is not worth it. There is no formula no, I'm not, where I'm not, it makes I'm not, sense. I'm not being pro-Marvel. I'm just saying I don't want the market to die because, well, most of the comics I like come from that market. I want Marvel I under- to stop being Marvel, which I understand not going that. to happen. Exactly. I understand that, but also part of the problem is in saying that we're also saying right the, because the market is pushing for more, not less. We're never going to get to a point where all of a sudden DC will be like we can now afford to put out comics for 199. That's not going to happen. No. If anything, these books are only going to get more and more expensive as time goes on because they understand that a certain core readership will buy them no matter what the price is. So, and if that is the system that is being sustained by the direct market, whether or not it blows back on Image, Boom, Valiant, Aftershock, Archie, all of the good companies, what can like this cannot be sustained long term. It just can't. And if it has to all get burned down to a crisp, and if Image has to be the one to say, we're going all digital, no more print comics, but from now on, all our digital comics will cost $1 because that's all it costs to host it on the server, then fine. Do the digital revolution and just get it over with already. That's cold. It, it is cold, but we, I'm telling you, I'm, I'm putting this out as a prediction. By the end of 2017, all Marvel books will be $4.99. Oh, and yeah. Special sure. issues will be six. The will big be question $6. is, will Marvel make the market rise with them, or will Marvel just crash as a company? Because, I don't know, according to reports, they're losing sales in the direct market by the truckload. And if, if their next reboot, restart, re-X-Menizing, Golding, Bluing, whatever, doesn't bring the, the sales back up, Maybe Marvel will just become like the second publisher for good. They've led but the how market is that for any so better? long. I, I don't but know. The, the, the situa- that doesn't make the situation any better because it will just encourage DC to up their prices as well, which we've already seen. No, right? because if, if they were committed for Marvel, to Marvel, DC won't do that. If if DC and Image and Boom and IDW sees that Marvel's try for five dollar monthly and it burns them, hopefully they'll stop. They'll hold the line at three ninety nine then. Better than nothing. No, it isn't. See, okay, that's exactly it, right? My argument would be it isn't better than nothing because three ninety nine isn't acceptable either. And the fact that we're tolerating it again, right? Why? Why did DC make such a big show of saying two ninety nine? Where did they get that number from? It was substantially less than the competition, 
And I'm sure that that was part of the reason that their sales went up during the rebirth period is that suddenly their books were more affordable. But if they're going to $3.99 now, they'll be at $4.99 by the end of this year or by the start of next year. And then we're just stuck in this cycle of constant escalation. So maybe it's not better than nothing. Maybe nothing is better than this. Well, we'll see, I guess. Speaking of the future, let's talk about previews for April. Oh, yeah. Some good stuff. Yeah, some decent titles across the board. I want to start with DC. Okay. Only because it gives me another opportunity to say I told you so. And you know how I love that. Um, So Batman 21. This is the Tom King series. Mm -hmm. Starts a new crossover with The Flash ongoing called The Button. Yeah. Tom, not you, Tom King I'm talking to right now. Tom, I know you can hear me. Uh, I admire and respect you, but this some bullshit. Uh, Not even you, with all your mighty, mighty skills, are going to get me to read a book in which Batman and The Flash investigate the mystery of Watchmen. Not interested. Yeah, I you know, good for DC. I thought it would take them longer to make me not read a Tom King book, but, you know, like... I mean, you know what's funny about all this, though? They're building up this ridiculous mystery about the bloodstained smiley face <sighs> button, right? That Batman found it in his cave, and it's this huge mystery. But uh, put yourself in Batman's shoes for a second. You find that you would either think that Robin went punching out the Joker or something and brought back a souvenir, or that Alfred is playing a prank on you, right? It's a symbol. That, that symbol of the smiley face with the blood stain is something that only readers would pick up on. So it doesn't have any meaning. Why are they investigating a button? The button I'm, doesn't I'm mean anything. I honestly said that the readership online seems to be very enthusiastic for that. Of course they are. Uh, they, they, they have not learned the lessons of before Watchmen. Because it, it's not about before Watchmen. And, uh, you know, their their I keep, problem. I keep having to explain to people over and over again how Ellen Moore got screwed over, and everybody's like, "No, it's okay." You know, it's they their don't care. comic, and I'm like, "Yes, it's their comic because they stole it by well, means of legal hickory dickory." Part of the problem here is that, to be blunt, and again, you you know that I've said this before, and and I stand by it. Because Alan Moore has damaged his public image so much, because he's not a writer that is largely held in respect by today's standards, because of today's work, then the audience at large doesn't really care that he got screwed over. And it sucks that, that that's the case, right? That shouldn't be how it goes. But it's not like he's some fan favorite to this day where people can say, oh, I read his book last week. He, it's funny. Tom King today sort of occupies the slot that Alan Moore would have if he had bothered to play the game. But because he insists on being this weirdo fringe outlier who writes books about tentacle rape, then, okay, so DC screwed him over. Who cares? Well, I care. You care. Oh, well, you care, I care, but we have the benefit of having known Alan Moore at his prime. Even, ju- even without... I, I don't care about this crossover. I No. Just... Well, why would you care about... They're investigating a button. If this were any other button, like if it were a big red button, it would be maybe more interesting. That symbol is just something that clues in readers, hey, this is the big Watchmen crossover. And at the end, it's going to turn out to be a crossover with John Wagner's button man instead. Pro- I would not be surprised. <laughs> it's a better idea. Throw Harry Exton in there too, sure. Yeah. Uh, speaking of Batman, 
Uh, yeah. Batman The Shadow, number one. Now, DC has been doing these crossovers, these crossovers recently with other companies. They had Green Lantern, Star Trek, and uh, uh, Gotham Academy, Lumberjanes. Yeah. And usually it's they give, give, give those titles to, like, not, not to be too insulting, the B talent, like the less high-selling writer's artist. But this one is written by Scott Snyder and Steve Orlando, out by Raleigh and Rosmo. So yeah. they're throwing their A-game at, at this. Which I find weird. I mean, first of all, I do think it's interesting that DC seems weirdly willing to share its franchises with other companies, because this is being co-published by Dynamite. Yeah. They're, they're co-publishing Green Lantern and Planet of the Apes with IDW. They've collaborated with Boom twice now. It's it's interesting. Like I, I'm not sure what their strategy is because the books that they're choosing don't seem to be spectacles, right? It's IDW and Planet of the Apes. It's, in this case, The Shadow. I haven't heard anybody even talk about The Shadow in 10 years. Yeah. So, Bo- you know, they, they, they've chose Boom and they're... Do- well, no, Lumberjanes is a pretty big seller for Boom. Yeah, Lumberjanes is a big hit. Gotham Academy has a, a fan base, absolutely, but yeah, they're yeah. not at A-list. They're not at the top of the sales chart. And it wasn't the actual writing team of either Lumberjanes yeah. or Gotham Academy. It was uh, Christina Claxton Major, right? Yeah. So it, it is unusual, I think. It's kind yeah. of... You know, I'm not sure what what they're up to. Well, now, it's, it's going to sell by truckload, based well, based simply on the Scott Snyder, Steve Orlando name. And yeah, it's a it's a strong creative team. I'm not going to lie; I'm kind of curious because I like Orlando, I like Snyder. I think they're they're very very talented writers. The Shadow, Batman, I two characters that I find incredibly boring, but it could work. Sure. I don't know. Anything else from DC for you? Nope. Uh, just want to mention JLR Year One by Mark Wade and Brian Augustin is getting the deluxe treatment. That's uh, 330 pages for $50 large hardcover, mm-hmm. all 12 issues. It was, I recall, an okay series. He was doing uh, the post-crisis origin of the JLA at the same time as Grant Morrison was doing his own, you know, high-action je- genre busting, throw anything in the world and see what sticks run right. on the Justice League. And this yeah. was more like the old-fashioned, closer to the ground. I think they actually had fog bubbles there. Oh, God. With, hey, I like fog bubbles. I, I'm okay with them, too. I don't mind them. But So, like, just to explain how old-fashioned it was. <laughs> okay. And, could know, but Mark, Wade, Mark Wade can do, like, good old-fashioned superheroics. Well, he did. I mean, he he wrote the Tower of Babel storyline, right? Yeah, yeah, that was after yeah. Morrison. And yeah, it's so not the greatest thing ever, but if you're in in a mood for a good Justice League story, yeah, hey, it's a it's a good one. Good classic Justice League, sure. Anything from Marvel? A uh, couple of points of interest, none of which are recommendations. So brace yourself. Uh, Black Panther and the Crew Number One by Tanahisi Coates and Yona Harvey, art by Butch Guise. Now I'm of two minds here. So far, from what I've been able to tell, Coates' run seems to be well-received. It doesn't appeal to me specifically, but that's fine, right? I don't need every book to appeal to me. Let it exist. But I don't think that he's managed to reinvent the character to the extent where T'Challa can now sustain three monthly titles. Because there's this, there's the core book, and there's World of Wakanda. World of Wakanda, Wakanda. yeah. I don't, they might be stretching it a bit thin. I well, sales seem to be pretty strong for Black yeah. Panther title and in general. 
Yeah. Maybe. Uh, the Crew, by the way, was an, a spin-off book. Well, not spin-off. A continuation book by Christopher Priest once he finished his original Black Panther run about a team of mostly African-American superheroes and, like, sort of superheroes. Right. Like, they had the guy who was the son of the, like, Captain America Zero from The Crew of Red, White, and Black. Yeah. Zab Bradley. Mm-hmm. So they had his son, and they had one of the cops introduced during the end of this Black Panther run and stuff like that. I have not read it. I assume it's good because it was Christopher Priest in, during yeah. one of his golden ages. Like, yeah. When he was really, really on, on target. Um, hmm. And this one, well, it takes the name and the idea of street-level uh, threats in America, but otherwise all the characters are like big superheroes. You have... Storm, Luke Cage, Misty Knight, and Manifold. I think she's one of the X-Men. Which, when you think about it, aren't those the same characters that uh, Reginald Hudlin brought in when he wanted to do that? T'Challa needs a bride, so let's get all the black women in Marvel to well, line, line up. I'm not I'm not the biggest Ta-Nehisi Coates Black Panther fan, but he is a million, billion, trillion <laughs> times better yeah. than, than Reginald Hudlin. Yeah, I'll concede. I mean, if, if anything else, it just points to how scarce African-American characters in Marvel really are, that the same ones keep popping up whenever somebody wants to do a comic about black characters. Right? It's always Storm, Misty Knight, etc., etc. I right? will it's say, always... it's a good book to publish because it's one of those titles that will help you to know who to unfriend online. <laughs> All the people will be so angry that they oh, have yeah. like a, a black-only team. How dare that's, they? That's reverse racism! Hint, it's not. Rever- but... Reverserism. Yeah, it, it's good for, for screening on, on Facebook. You're absolutely right. Uh, uh, speaking of number ones... Royals by L. Ewing and John Boy Myers. This is another oh. Inhumans title. A space opera title in which the royal family goes into space. Oh, God. Listen. Okay. Okay. First of all, Al Ewing, you're better than this. Glob love you, but you are better than this. And you know what? This is how... This just goes to show you how Marvel aren't even trying anymore. Did you notice the solicitation text for this one? The Resurrection of the Inhumans Begins, they took a title that was specifically designed for rebooting the X books to the point where they kept the X in Resurrection and they applied it to the Inhumans. Wow, like on a level of clumsy marketing, this is just not even giving an effort anymore. It's ridiculous. I, I, I mean, I, 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 here's the thing. I think Al Ewing likes writing these kind of stuff. He likes the other ends of the... Other, like O-D-D-E-R. I'm sorry for my pronunciation. Of the Marvel Universe. And when they, they do it as a space opera, they basically allow him to thank heaven, steer clear of the many Marvel Earth crossovers. They'll just be at space. Sure, and, and Though, to they'll be probably completely meet fair. the Guardians of the Galaxy like 2,000 oh. times during oh, those yeah. two issues. Oh yeah, the, they might even end up on but planet. Again, Hulk. I, I like Al Ewing. John Boy Myers is a good artist. Technically, I could enjoy the concept, but because it's Marvel, it's like they're sapping my ability to care about this stuff. Uh, by the fact that they're calling it like it's a resurrection, hmm. why why is there an X here? Uh, you want to say the resurrection? The Inhumans haven't gone anywhere as much as we would like them to. They're still here, so they don't need to be resurrected in the first place. But then you're taking the X Men event and throwing if, it at. If, if Marvel were writing the New Testament, Jesus, Jesus would one day just fall on the floor and bump his head, <laughs> and, and then he would get up, and people would call that the resurrection. 
he fell down, but he get up again. It, You're never going to keep him down. Yeah. And speaking of obvious maneuvers, right? So we mentioned that the, X bo- the X-Men books are being rebooted into X-Men Blue and X-Men Gold. It's literally the same characters and premises as before. It's old writers. It's Colin Bunn. It's Mark Guggenheim. Whatever, if right? You, if you want to make people excited, with all the respect for Colin Bunn, who can, who can write good comics? And Guggenheim, well, he's not my favorite, but he, can, he has his fans, right? But if you want to make people excited for your new titles, you know, Guggenheim and, and Bunn? Well, I take it a step further. If you want to get people excited for your titles, especially when you're presenting them as your core titles, don't assign writers who you relegated to satellite titles and then canceled or ended immediately because they sucked. This, right? is, this is one of those things you busted Jason Aaron for. Right, I mean, You're saying think, the guy who made Wolverine the X Men is back on the X Men. I don't know. That'll get people in the seats, right? Yeah. Or, but, but that's the that's just going to show how little effort Marvel are really really putting into this here. Because think about it, Mark Guggenheim. The last time Marvel were even willing to look his way, they put him on the all female X Men title for four issues, and then they yanked him out. He wasn't good enough then. Right? Colin Bunn was on Magneto, which was a satellite title of a satellite title. That actually was a pretty good book. It, I'm not saying anything about the quality of the book. I'm saying look at where they prioritized him, right? Yeah. He wasn't writing on Kenny X-Men. They deliberately shunted him off to a satellite book, Magneto, where he did whatever he wanted for 20 issues, and then that book got canceled, Right? And now they want to get everyone excited because they literally have no one else. Right? No one else is willing to jump on these sinking ships any longer. So, hey, let's get hyped up for X-Men Blue and X-Men Gold with Colin Bunn and Mark Guggenheim. Featuring Why? Deathmate Mauve as a crossover sure. five issues down the line. Sure. Why? If you want to get excited, get excited for the trade. At least you'll get Loki journeying to Mystery Omnibus. There you go. Yeah, this is the Kieran, mostly Kieran Gillen written with some odd issues and crossovers by Abnett, Lanning, and Matt Fraction, with penciling by Doug Braithwaite, Rich Elson, Wills Potashio, Mitch Breitweiser, Carming D, I have no idea how to pronounce it, D, <laughs> Gia de Mencino, I think. I'm sorry. I think so. I'm, and yeah. Stephanie Hans and Alan Davis. This is the saga of the child Loki post the siege crossover. In uh-huh. which he tries to be a good guy, but constantly fails. A, because he has the tendency to keep on betraying his friends. And B, because nobody trusts him after years of the older Loki being the world's worst villain. Right. And you, I remember, didn't enjoy it that much. You no. fell down hard on the crossovers. It was problematic for me because... Not only because of the crossovers, but because the events sprang out of fear itself, there were some contexts there that Gillen never bothered to explain. And this was something that happened in Young Avengers too, where he would just throw things into the book and you would feel that they did come from somewhere, but he never explained it. So it was always like, I I don't... I thought it was a fantastic series for my money, one of the best Marvel series of the 21st century. I I would admit that the New Mutants crossover was overlong. Mm. But overall, it has a it had a great arc, and Gillen sort of knew from the get go what he was doing with the character and the way he wanted it to end, and you can feel it when it yeah. ends. It ends on its own terms, not not yeah. ending like oh the sales well, are low, we should cancel it. 
Well, let, not exactly, because let's not forget that he spun that off into a new series immediately afterwards. Like, he had intended to continue the story. No, no, he intended to continue, but it's a different, for all intents and purposes, that Loki was a different character. He yeah. ended the story of Kid Loki the way he wanted him to. And I well, thought it was well, a no, great no, 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 no. series. He, he with, ended with the story. great moments and great art. No, he ended the story of Kid Loki in Young Avengers. That was like, like Team Loki later. No, no, it, it started. Yeah, no, but, well, yeah. But that would be explaining exactly what happened there, spoiling <laughs> the end of Journey to Mystery, which I won't. Yeah, do. that's fair. It's it's. I think it's more appropriate to think of Kieran Gillen's work with that character specifically as a long running arc that stretched across several books. And it's so I don't. Fair, but I, I think you can read Journey to Mystery by itself. Okay. okay. Uh, th- there are two items that I wanted to pick your brain about. Okay. With, with regards to Marvel. So, Ben Riley, The Scarlet Spider, number one. This is by Peter David and Mark Bagley. Ben hey. Riley's back. Hey, did he ever went away? Didn't they have like a Ben Riley series like two year, like a year ago? I, I don't. They called him something else. They didn't call him Scarlet Spider, they called him the. Spider Murmurman, whatever I don't know. The Spider Murmurman. Um, maybe I'm confused because Peter David wrote the Spider-Man 2099 series. That no, that was Miguel O'Hara. Yeah, but I'm saying like all the Spider-Man spin-offs, your Spider-Man, <laughs> your Spider-Gwen, your other Spider-Man, and your Scarlet Spider. So yeah, so this, many, the difference. Too I think many. The, the difference here, I think, is that the solicitation seems to be suggesting that this is. Ben Riley of the clone, the infamous clone saga. Yeah, yeah, they, they back brought him, him back after Spider-Man. So, what are your thoughts on I that? Think, oh no, no, wait, I'm sorry. Scarlet Spider, the old, the recent Scarlet Spider-Man series was Kane. Yeah, it was Kane. Yeah, yeah. And then, yeah, so they're, but this is like they're, they're basically jumping back into the clone yeah, saga. Well, for I should admit, for my eternal shame. The first Marvel book that I've read proper was the Ben Riley Spider-Man series. There's was, no shame in that. How could you have avoided it? Was it was translated into Hebrew in the mid-90s, and I was like, oh, it's it's a Spider-Man comic. Yeah, so, but let's the, not the forget that. that my bar was set so low that that's <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, let's be fair here. Ben Riley and the clone storyline was so ubiquitous at Marvel for so many years that, like, how could you not have bumped into it, right? Yeah. It was literally like Scarlet Spider everywhere. I don't care. Marvel has enough Spider characters; they don't need the third one. They really or don't. Actually, the fourth one. If you count all the Spider Women right now, because you have Spider Gwen, Spider Woman, and Sil- Silk still still has an ongoing, right? Yeah. So really, that's. You've moved past overkill into a completely into a megadeth category. <laughs> like megadeth is the number of people dying in a nuclear explosion. You've Pretty in much. that level of spider title. Enough. R- yeah. Literally enough. And they're all running around in New York, slinging webs, probably bumping into each other and falling from the sky. Oh, New York must seem disgusting by now. You have to imagine like all of the buildings coated in like white fluid. Well, Ew. Yeah. Well, it's like it's supposed to melt away after an hour, if I remember right. But yeah, it but does, not, it not if matter. it, it doesn't not matter. if fifty spider people are running back and forth everywhere. Yeah, it's, it's Marvel stop. Anything else? <laughs> well, there is one other thing uh, that I wanted to get your opinion on from Marvel: Nick Fury number one by James Robinson and Akko. See, it's I by do James love Akko, so I don't care. That's the thing. I feel like I've given Robinson enough chances at this point. I'm yeah, not interested in yeah. going back. We, we've tried but and we've tried. 
It's not gonna be. It's not gonna be the the ye olden days again. But it's Akko, though. The question is whether or not Akko's artwork would tilt the scales. No, Akko okay. is a pretty good artist. Not enough. If you want me to read the James Robinson comic right these days, you need like a Frank Whiteley. You need a James Stoker. You need one of Oof. those one trillion dollars per page artists to make me want to read. That's fair. That's fair. I can't argue with that. It, it's and it's not like his recent stuff has been terrible, but it's no, but just average. It, it, no, no, nothing is gonna be as bad as Cry for Justice. That was him, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. Nothing is gonna be as bad as this, but he's not good. It's, it's not just not good. I know some people liked Airboy, but really, I was not one of them. Mm. Uh, shall we move on to Lynch? Let's. What have you got? Uh, I've got only one thing that I really care about. Rock Candy Mountain. Mm. Number one, that's a new series written and drawn by Carl Starks of Sex Castle fame. Uh, We reviewed the Sex Castle graphic novel, which I thought was spectacularly, amazingly funny, hilarious, and actually touching at points. So he's doing a comedy action story about a hobo searching in... Searching throughout the U.S. in post-World War II after the legendary Rock Candy Mountain. That's not a metaphor. That's the actual thing he's looking for. I'm kind of concerned that the Rock Candy is going to end up being crack. Because this is Kyle Starks and you never know with him. <laughs> I but, um, okay, so I, I have a couple of items of potential interest and mm-hmm. image. So, uh, Black Cloud number 1 by Ivan Brandon and Jason Latour. Art by Greg Hinkle and Matt Wilson. The solicitation text is a bit vague. Something about a girl who comes from a world of dreams. Greg Hinkle is a great artist. He is. uh, I enjoy Jason Latour. Uh, Ivan Brandon I'm not as strong a fan of. Jason Latour is so busy right now because he has a new uh, image series coming out this week. And mm-hmm. and he's he's still writing Spider Gwen, right? And I think he's still and well, he's he, right and he's co writing and drawing Southern Bastards. So that's that's a, like a, yeah. that's a full plate. Yep. Well, listen, if he wants to branch out, more power to him. Yeah, but I've been Brandon. I, I, the problem with modern comics is that a lot of the superstar writers are becoming swapped and super busy and become diluted so fast. Like I love they Jeff gotta Le- make money, Jeff Lemire. But if 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 the Market is so bad that someone like Jeff Lemire needs to write at least five titles and draw another one every Just month. This is overkill. Someone like Jeff Lemire shouldn't do that. Yeah, if if the industry was geared towards respecting its creators, mm-hmm. we wouldn't be in the situation that we're in. But uh, I am intrigued by the creative lineup and, you know, an image number one, I'm always willing to give it a chance. Another image number one that I'm more skeptical about, though, mm-hmm. is Rose number one. This is by Meredith Finch and Ig Guara. And the reason that I'm skeptical is that on the one hand, it seems to be a boilerplate fantasy story, which could work. Even standard generic fantasy can still be interesting sometimes. But Finch gained a little bit of infamy for tanking Wonder Woman last year and having some problems with portrayals of female characters specifically so i'm not entirely well, that was co-written sure with david fitch right so yeah, i don't think it was co-written i think he was doing the art and she was doing mm. the script i never read anything else by her <laughs> so i have no frame of reference and the actual mm. solicitation isn't very interesting it's image has a problem with solicitations that a lot of it sounds 
at this point, kind of generic, oh, it's a genre trope X, Y, and Z. Yeah. And usually they get over it because the creators are big enough names. Like, Meredith if, Finch, if, not you, so much. If you're Ed Brubaker, you could just allow to write, it's an Ed Brubaker book, and people would buy it. Yeah. Uh, even Jason Latour at this point, like, Jason Latour is writing, and some people would be, yeah, sure, I'll buy it. It's a Jason Latour yeah. book. I like this in Jason Latour. Is I think they Finch there? I don't think so. <laughs> Not in the least. And I think also, I think they've recognized that to some extent they've cornered the market on original sci-fi and fantasy. So does it really matter what they put in the previews text? It's not like you could find that at any other publisher at, at that amount of quantity. Well, yeah, some quantity isn't always for the best. Yeah. Uh, so two other items. There's a trade paperback that I think it's an exclusive because I couldn't find an ongoing of this. It's uh, Kid Savage by yeah. Joe Kelly and British cartoonist Ilya about a family of space explorers who crash on an alien world and meet this wild alien orphan who helps them out. Um, seeing as how this is Joe Kelly, I'll at least give it a try, but it's weird that it's only a trade. No, they, he's been doing it for a while, Joe Kelly. He had a lot of stuff that's went straight for tri- straight for graphic novels at Image. Mm. He's one of the men of action dudes, so he doesn't need the cash flow. He gets it from the Ben 10, I guess, reruns. Right. So he could just allow... To, he doesn't have to publish something every month. He could be like, well, I want to write something now, and when it comes, it comes. Yeah. Which is mm-hmm. hey, good for him. I not, not the biggest fan of his recent stuff, but good for him. Yeah, that's right. I don't know if you've read it, we've missed that news because it was during the end of the year. Joe mm-hmm. Casey, who's also one of the Men of Action guys, announced that Sex is going to become a graphic novel exclusive. Yeah, we, I think we talked about that oh. a few episodes ago. Um, uh, because I'm not reading it, I don't really have anything insightful to say about that. No, it's but an interesting transition. He, he basically announced it, doing it monthly is a pain in the ass. And I, yeah. I, and I have enough money anyway, so we're going to do it like that. It is known at this point that they're not the the creator owned model that Image operates on for single issues specifically. It's hit and miss. Some people can do really well off of it. Some people are not. Even veterans like Joe Casey's been around for ages. Yep. You know, but he he's struggling. And if this trade program works out better for him, good luck. Anything else for Image? Uh, Ooh, one other thing. They're putting out a giant-sized artist-proof edition of the first two issues of Renato Jones. Well, if they take out all the dialogue and just put the art, that's as good as Renato Jones will get. Because, as we've discussed, <laughs> that, that, that book had great art. That guy can draw. He's just a bad writer. I rebuke it. I rebuke it in the name of the Lord. He, he's a great artist. He is. It's just, you know, he's a bad writer. And, it's and, terrible and the artist's position, I don't know if they take up the <laughs> word balloons and such, if they do, but that's 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 your Renato Jones recommendation for me anyway. Oh, God. Just take Renato Jones and find a different writer to work with the panels like like Marvel used to do in the 90s. Get a different scripter. <laughs> He's uh, terrible. Dark Horse is really on the ball in April. Here we go. So there, we both, I think, locked onto the same two items, but I'm going to let you have them because I know that from the moment no, 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 you no, saw no, them, no, you no, no, no. I'm, I'm going to start with like, something that I know that I care about, and I'll let you have one of the other two. I'm a nice guy. Go for it. Uh, Shaolin Cowboy, Who'll Stop the Rain, number one of four, a new Shaolin Cowboy miniseries written and drawn by Jeff Darrow, and Shaolin Cowboy is greatness achieved it's the zenith of the form 
and Jeff Darrow is the king of comets. Really, there's no plot to that. It's just his own brain mindscape given visual form. Like, it's visual poetry. It's brilliant. It's beautiful. And I'll buy it. I'll buy, even if I don't even have to read the solicits to buy it. Wow. Yeah. Because, okay. You know, the last, the last Shaolin Cowboy miniseries, the solicits were just, he fights zombies, and that's all he did, and it was still brilliant. Four <laughs> issues of him chopping down zombies, and he made it into poetry. So, I'm there. I'm there. Okay, I know you love uh, Jeff Darrow. Oh, yeah. And Colors by Dave Stewart, Mm, no less. Um, Gotta love it. Now, so there was one other thing here that as soon as I saw this item, I knew that the top of your head probably blew off. Uh, Aliens, Dead Orbit. A miniseries? A four-issue miniseries from Dark Horse, written and drawn by James Stokoe. Woo! Now, Now, here's the thing. Let's... Let's be real here. No one's come up with a new angle on aliens in decades, right? I don't think that that's what people read aliens comics for. Because the the premise of this sounds like the premise of the first movie. There's one guy trapped on a space station being chased by an alien. Okay, fine. The fact that it's Stoko though, yep, is is the draw, and I think it's a pretty significant draw. Stoko has shown the ability to take used concept like Godzilla and make them work simply with a visual flair and basically paring down the plot and the character to the most basic level. Because he knows, from the solicits, he knows that Alien is about a guy or at best some guys being chased by something terrible and scary in the dark. He's not going to pretend that it's anything more or less. It's just this very primal concept. And he said, well, yeah, this is it. I'm just going to work with it. Yeah. And that's fair, right? I mean, that's what people are going to be going there for. This is a guy who did Godzilla in hell. And he said, well, Godzilla goes to hell and he kills things. The end. And and it was brilliant. His one issue of Godzilla in hell was excellent. Uh, Anything else from Dark Horse? Uh, Adventures of Superhero Girl by Faith Aaron Hicks, which we reviewed... Like in the, I think, second or third episodes of this show? <laughs> it was like early. Years ago. Uh, gets a soft cover, re- uh, sorry, hardcover reprint with two extra stories that she did between the recent, the original printing and this one. Mm. I am kind of miffed about if you like that, if you like the original and you want to read those new stories, well, you'll have to buy it again, which is yeah. something that comics does too much all too often. Especially when you, sorry, go ahead. But if you if you have not, and I wouldn't recommend paying seventy dollars for seventeen, not seventy, for two new stories and some backup uh, features. But if you haven't read it, it's it's a brilliant series. It's like it's hilarious, it's touching, it's personal. It's a fantastic series that frustrates me because every time Dark Horse resolicit it, they remind me that she could have kept it going. I'm not like I know that she works on multiple graphic novels these days and she had that terrible Buffy novel which fine, it wasn't the terrible show. Oh, it, it was it was pretty bad. <laughs> but um you know th- this was something that could have legitimately been an ongoing I, because but if she doesn't want to she doesn't want to you know that's fair serious, that's fair know? and just because we like it more than some of her other stuff you know she, <laughs> wa- she wants to do the nameless city i haven't that's read okay it yet. i heard it's great 
I'm, I'm not the person... Her. No, I'm not her editor. I'm not going to tell her what to work on. All I'm saying is when, you know, the, the fact that the book gets resolicited is an indication of its popularity, obviously. And it should be because it's really, really good. It just bothers me that they treat it as though now you have two extra stories, so purchase it again. Eh, I don't think that that's a compelling argument. I think if you haven't read it, find the, the cheaper previous trade version instead because two stories aren't going to make or break anything like a new hicks material i think is great but if you are going to commit to adding new material to a book either separate it right put out a one shot put out an annual free comic books day whatever right draw interest back to the trade with new material but resoliciting the whole thing eh. and it's a hardcover right this new edition yeah a hardcover on top of that? $17, so at least it's not super It's affordable, expensive. but yeah. it's it, it still bothers me a little bit, you know? Anything else from Dark Horse? Nope. Uh, IDW? Sure. So you have a lot to talk about with IDW. Oh, yeah, yeah. So I, bef- I'll, I'll just run through them. I won't make you snore. Uh, <laughs> no, that's cool. Before you get there, though, there's one... I, I only have one item of interest okay. on IDW. So, okay. Uh, Gem and the Holograms is ending at issue 26. Yep, that's Kelly Thompson and Giselle Legacy. Yes, I think so. Mm -hmm. Uh, On top of that, uh, The Misfits has retroactively been made a five-issue miniseries. Wasn't it originally a five-issue mini? I don't remember. When it it launched, it was launched as an ongoing Mm -hmm. in all the previews material. Now... I don't know what the cause of this is. Kelly Thompson has already said in an interview with uh, CBR that there will be some kind of encore coming up. But I have really, 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 really mixed feelings here. On the one hand, I understand the logic that it is better for this series to go out while it's still incredibly good. This book survived losing Sophie Campbell. You have to give them credit for that. Yeah, but they have I, found... I just read issue 23, and yeah. they have so many plates spinning in the air right now. Wrapping it all up in three issues seems weird. It seems it's unlikely like... and unsatisfying, and I think that's also why Thompson said there's going to be uh, some kind of follow-up. Well, 26 to... is a double-length issue, so four yeah. issues, which I, I don't is know. possible, but... I don't know. It, it, it's possible that they could just end it on an open note and hope for a renewal... Uh, somewhere in 2017, maybe early 2018. So, but, but my, the, my the big larger... fear is that they that the big encore would be they're throwing it in into the Hasbro verse. Well, w? we'll we'll get to that momentarily. Gem and the Transformers. <laughs> oh no, no, no! You already know that I'm not interested in that, so don't even take me there. GI Gem, actually, GI Gem. Okay, you know what? GI Gem, I'll read. I'll go that far, but. So I understand, like, the the principle of... Again, I don't know if this is because of low sales or because if Thompson wants to move on. Either way, if it ends while it's still coherent and good and at the top of its game, fine. But there are so few books out there that do what Gem does and as well as it does Mm -hmm. that this really feels like a loss for me. Okay. Uh, I'll just go on through my uh, lovelies fast. Uh, Judge Red, The Blessed Earth, number one, by Ulysses Farinas and Arik Ferreiras, with art by Dan McDade. This is another American Judge Dredd series. It's the continuation of their Mega City Zero uh, ongoing, which ran, still is running right now. I think it's supposed to end at issue 13. 
Mm-hmm. And they're basically doing an inverse of the classic Dread formula where he goes onto the cursed Earth outside the city and it's, you know, all post-Mad Max hellscape. And here it's like, he's going outside and, oh, everything's nice. Right. And, well, I love Ulysses Farinas as a writer. I think he's doing some amazing work right now with Motoro. And yeah. uh, what was the anthology title we reviewed last year, which just ended? Uh, amazing Forest. Amazing Forest. And, and that- I think... He has another one coming up now, right? Bono or Bueno or something like that. I think that... No, Bueno is the name of a publishing company, like a mini a mini publisher I think he's doing with Oni. Maybe I'm wrong. I, anyway, he's yeah. a very good writer and he works well with Arik Ferreiras. And Dan McDade is a great artist. It's just... I love watching Dan McDade work. Mm. So, I'm game for it. Also, okay. in terms of collections... Uh, Nate Powell's Omnibox, that's a box with three graphic novels by the great Nate Powell, the guy who did March recently, mm. Draw March, uh, Swallow Me Whole, Any Empire, and You Don't Say, $50, 700 pages. Wow. Uh, that's like, that's that's value for money. I, yeah. I have not read any of those yet. They all got great reviews when it came out, and Nate Powell is an amazing artist. He's just spectacular. Yeah. And finally, Real Science, Advent- Real Science Adventures, a six-issue mini by Brian Clevenger and Lowe Baker. It's a spinner from Atomic Robo. I love Atomic Robo. And this one features the Flying Sheet Devils of the Pacific, a post-World War II group of flying pilots fighting against sky pirates, which is as good, as good a concept as any you can find in the world. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Mm-hmm. Uh, boom? Anything from Boom? boom? Uh, only one item. I've got Godshaper number one by Simon Spurrier and Jonas Goodface. Uh, it's about a social pariah who can create gods for other people, and he teams up with this weird god called Bud who doesn't have a human. So it sounds like it's my faith in Frankie without the romance. Hmm. Um, Spurrier number ones are almost always worth a look. You know, we, we have had some contentious opinions of stuff that he's put out in the he's past. Where... All, he's always almost great. He's yeah. Like... You're yeah, he's almost step, great. And one step from being from being very, very, very good, and you're just like, mm, yeah. Maybe, he, maybe he, this he will always, be the hit that he needs. I'm never. That's the thing. I'm never disappointed. You I'm never know like, if he's gonna yeah. kick the ball or like Lucy's gonna pull it away from him again. But uh, it, it, <laughs> yeah. but it's but that's why like for number ones at least it's always worth a try because this could be the one. Uh, Giant Days reaches issue twenty five. Uh, yes. With a bit with a bigger size issue going for five dollars and a new backup artist called Liz Fleming, who okay. I don't know from Adam uh, or from Max Aaron in this case, but it's Giant Days, it's Giant, Giant Days, Days. It, it's bound to be good, right? What what more need be said at this point? Mm-hmm. Oni, Oni, I have Kim Reaper number one by Sarah Grayley. This looks potentially fun. So it's about a girl named Becca who's a university student. And she has a crush on this goth girl called Kim, who's actually a Grim Reaper. Sounds fun. Sounds yeah. potentially interesting. You're saying the word Grim Reaper, and we have sirens in the background. Yeah, that's as soon good, as I said it, it's like... That's good work. That's good work. <laughs> They're coming for me. plus. <laughs> They're coming for me. Uh, so, yeah, it, the the art style is kind of cartoony, which is an interesting take. Sarah, no, Sarah Grawley. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, it could work. I'm looking forward to it. Oni okay. has had some success with 
off kilter weird books before. So it, it yeah. looks really fun. Yeah, I'm into that. Yeah. Uh, since we've mentioned uh, Ulysses Farinas and Eric Freitas, Motro gets volume one for ten dollars. This series goes to a weird place, some weird places. I haven't read it yet. It's just it basically there's a huge time jump between any single issue. So by issue three, the kid is like a lot older. So I have no idea by by the time volume one ends, he might be seventy years old or something. Well, I'm sure Farina has a plan. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I would trust him with that. And the fact that I was also happy to see that it was Mocho Volume One, meaning yeah. it's not a four issue mini. Also, because... again, ten dollars. That's how you yeah. sell a Volume One. Yeah. Uh, Aftershock. Aftershock. Uh, two items of interest. I've got World Reader Number One by Jeff Loveness and Juan Doe. Uh, it's about an astronaut who can psychically communicate with the ghosts of dead worlds. And that is a concept I find brilliant. Uh, Loveness did some good work with Groot last year. So mm-hmm. I'm into this. I will be checking this out. And the big one, one surprisingly big one, Eleanor and the Egret. That's a new series by John Lehman, just straight out of Chew. And Sam Keith, that's a name I haven't heard in a while. He's been off he's been the doing radar. The, he's been doing the Max like uh, Maximize, which was like a retouched, redraw, not redrawn, like recolored version of the Max. Yeah, but it's the Max. Who cares? Yeah. Well, a lot of people cared about the Max. Eh. Anyway, uh, it's about an art thief in a, like a steampunk world who has a friend who's a talking egret. Shades oh. of Bandette, uh, but... Sh- shades of Animosity and of... Uh, what was the one with... Uh, the other Aftershock series with the strange insect ladies? Insects. <laughs> yeah, the one with the insects. Insects. Yeah. Uh, like, it's like crossover between yeah. both of those. Mm, I'm interested with reservations because while I... You know, I love Chew. And see, I, I just. Do. Um, before we recorded, I re- I read the final trade finally, and then I nearly cried. Oh um, God! <laughs> not because it was super sad. Well, it was, but it was so great, and I'm so sad that there won't be any other chew. But mm. Layman's non-chew stuff has been not hit or miss, just throughoutly mediocre. Like he had his Batman run, which was meh. He had uh, a Godzilla miniseries, which was meh, and Am Alien miniseries, which was. Meh. Am I remembering correctly that he followed up on Greg Rucka on Cyclops? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that I haven't good. read that, but nobody seems to like that one. No, that was not good. And it might be, we might discover that the big creative force behind Chu was Gilroy. Because we reviewed some of the stuff that Gilroy did short stories to, like when he did the short story for the... WWE issue zero, and we were like, "Yeah, this is the single best thing in the issue, simply on the basis that he's drawing it." Sure, but I think also maybe part of the problem was that all of those other books that you mentioned were established properties. Maybe mm. what he really needs is another original story. Yeah, hopefully, and Sam Kiff is a unique artist, uh, yeah. so I'll give it a shot, but with a bit of trepidation of, "Oh, this might be." Because some people have just one good book in them. And, you know, it's perfectly fine. He done you. That's pretty much all you need to do to go into the pages of history for me. But it right. might prove out that this was the one book that he could do so very well. Yeah. Uh, one other point of sad news from Valiant, which mm-hmm. is that Generation Zero has been canceled at issue 9, which is unfortunate because I was enjoying it. 
but uh, that's I it. have not read it, so I will take your sadness and we'll so share it. So it's your it. fault. It's You'll canceled. share it. <laughs> it's your fault. It's canceled. Uh, the Valiant Universe is, it's like, there's so much of it. And <laughs> do, do I start with the ninjacks or with no. the renegades or with the divines? With Tom, when has, Armstrongs. when has anyone ever uttered the sentence, you should start with Ninjak? <laughs> I love Mad Kent. When like has... <laughs> and I like ninjas and jacks. So <laughs> I, I assume that Ninjak is about a guy who's half a ninja and half like a jack for a car. You're asking the wrong person. I never read those books. <laughs> I just stuck to the normal, quote unquote, normal side of the Valiant Universe. Uh... Shall we move on to the reviews? Let's. What do you want to start with? Sean, you chose that one. I did. No, no. Okay. Hang on, hang on. Let's be fair here. So the first title that we're going to discuss is one that we originally agreed on. Uh, We thought it was interesting when we saw it in the solicitations, interesting in a car crash sort of way. And we said, you know what? It might be worth a look. We started changing our mind, but then I said, no, we must stay the course because there's stuff worth talking about here. So... Slayer Repentless, number one, a free, that's a miniseries. It is by John Schnepp, Jill Villanova, and Mauricio Wallace from Dark Horse. And I quote from the inner, the first page, uh, based on the video trilogy written and directed by BJ McDonnell and inspired by the music of Slayer. Tom, take it away. Okay, so the basic plot is we have this former Aryan Brotherhood guy who left his gang, and because he left his gang, they are so angry at him, and they kill his wife, and being angry about the fridging of a female black character at the first page just seems basically, you know, pointless in a Slayer-based comic based on a music (laughs) video. It's like, well, it should make you annoyed, but... There's so much other stuff to be annoyed about. Yeah, there's a lot in this one. There's anyway, a lot going on. Anyway, they kill on. his wife, and he's and he attacks some of them. He's thrown into jail, but ah, that was but step one of his revenge scheme. And he starts killing Aryan brothers, and they calling in like their backup mean squads to kill him. Yeah, so of course naturally he has to run to the Mexicans because they're brutal and crazy and. Well, you know, he has a Mexican friend in jail. Now, this should be the comic of our time because this is a neo-Nazi stomping comics in 2017, which is as good a time as any to watch, to get your catharsis by by reading a brutal story about somebody stabbing neo-Nazis over and over again. Except it's not quite that simple, is it? Because, first of all, the Nazi imagery is... Right up in everybody's face. Second of all... Oh, well, uh, it's a story about killing neo-Nazis. You sort of have to also, use Nazi imagery. Sure, but, well, not necessarily with the armbands and everything. But on top of all that, there's also the issue that you do have a lot of violence that they inflict as well. Like, this is not Nazis getting punched out in the middle of an interview so everybody can make memes about it. A lot of throats get slit in this issue for some reason. It happens like mm. five times, six taken, times. Taken directly from the video, which had eye stabs as well. Well, there you go, I guess. The video um, was directed by the director of Hatch of the Hatchet movies, so, so no, see, su- I didn't, <laughs> no surprise there. See, I didn't watch the videos mm. because after reading this issue, eh, but... Okay, and you're not and a Slayer fan, you're not a metalhead. Like, I'm not, but... Like a certain you, other member of this podcast... So, so here's, this is exactly why I wanted your input. This is why I insisted that we stick with this. Mm. So first of all, first question. Uh, are the four serious bikers at the end supposed to be the band? 
are I are they supposed to be like the members of Flare? I think so. Okay, that that makes or at least sense. Uh, n not the actual members, like based on their image, at least. Right. Okay, and then so there's this dialogue. Mm -hmm. Let me quote you. There's okay. I've stopped letting the rage tunnel into me and cloud my mind with blame. I was a ghost, an empty shell, but my spirit woke up that night. Are these lyrics, and if they are, are they lyrics to Slayer or Celine Dion? I can't it, tell. It sounds like something that Slayer, later era Slayer would write. Uh, here's the thing. I'm, again, I'm a metal fan, and yeah. I like early Slayer. I grew, you know, I grew up with some of that stuff. I haven't actually listened to anything the band put out since 2002 or so. Mm-hmm. So I, I watched the video just to know what it's about, uh, the video at least. It's a decent Slayer song, I guess, you know, fast-paced, trashing, whatever. Not the greatest thing ever. And again, repentless is not a word. They, no. He just made up a word. It's not a word that exists. He wanted a word for no regrets and he made one up. Just called it no regrets. It's, it's fine. <laughs> it's, it's something that people know. But here's the thing. I have no problem with reading super ultra-violent comic about stabbing Nazis. But if you want to if you want to do that if you want to go over the top a go over the top don't give me this wispy weepy you know by the numbers revenge stories oh they kill my wife you know do go the John Wick version and have him kick his dog or something because stop pretending yeah. anybody cares about the emotional validity of this guy like my feelings who, who, my feelings like why why does he look like a pirate why does he wear an eyepiece I don't even know. <laughs> And B, uh, Villanova and Wallace are decent artists, at least here in terms of storytelling. But if you want to do a story based on a Slayer song, if you want to do like the, the comic version of a thra angry thrash metal, you need someone like Simon Bisley. Or yeah. Jeff Darrow. You need someone yeah. who would amp up the bloodshed and the gore and would make everything super over the top. You this know what is this... not a comic to go with somebody who is a decent storyteller. No. You know what this reminded me of in terms of like we had split opinions about it, but I think ran along those lines. Big Man Plans. Oh, the Big in Man terms Plans of, at least had great uh, vengeance art. And, yeah. And say like what idea, say what you will about the story. Th that was a gory, bloody comic with right. great. Uh, and I think part of the issue back then was that also we had that whole question of is it gratuitous, right? Like, does it go? too far just for the sake of shock value. And this, I mean, you know, everybody's throats, just slitting throats left and right whenever they want. It's like blood all over the panels. And it does feel at some point like, eh, I don't know if, if this is really meant to create some kind of like, what are we supposed to feel something? I don't, I don't and, know. And by the third or fourth split throat, you're like, oh, it's another, yeah, it's another of course. throat. It's like, of course they did. And then on top of that, like, I, I guess this is bringing in a little context from the outside, but it turns out that one of the band members is a trumpet. So I don't know if or at I least, Or at least one of the guys who, like, who thinks the word special snowflake are so very funny. Right. So I don't necessarily think that this book communicates what it thinks it's communicating because... You know, kill Bill against neo-Nazis who are, right, the only thing they're missing is the mustache. They're in the brown suits with the eagles. See, and it's, it's 2017 and those people have no problem walking out in public and basically 
we have to have discussions whether or not punching self-identifying Nazis is okay. So that actually reads for the record down. it is. For the record, it is. You can definitely punch Nazis. Use a knuckle duster, though. You, you, no. you don't want to hurt your fingers. Not knuckle duster. You want to use bronze knuckles so mm. that when you make contact, you do some real damage. Mm. Yeah. Maybe with some spikes on the knuckles. I don't know. I, I get creative. They're Nazis. Uh, but again, this should be over... You're doing something based on the music video. You shouldn't be just doing a low-down, run-of-the-mill revenge story. This yeah. should be... Bigger, better, stronger. This should be more gruesome. See, the thought that I had when I got to the end of this was that it was exactly what I had expected. And I don't think that that's, like, not in a good way. But I also don't think that that's a particularly useful reaction to have as a reader as saying, okay, so Slayer Repentless, from that title, you can guess exactly what's in this issue and there won't be a single panel that surprises you in any way. And I think when that's the case, it's just sort of... I was surprised that the guy was a pirate. That's... Why? Why? <laughs> he, he, it's not even a cool-looking patch. He looks like Bazooka Joe. Because you don't understand the dark torment that lies at no, the heart of a pirate. It's not, it's not like a Nick Fury patch. He actually looks like a Bazooka Joe character. Why <laughs> would you do that? Because pirates are dark, Tom. And in the video, his Mexican friend was played by... Um, of course. Played... Don't even finish that sentence. You're going to tell me it's that guy who plays in the Machete movies. Yeah, yeah. Um, what was his name? Danny Trejo. Danny Trejo. We are talking about Danny Trejo. Yes. yes. And the, mu- the man, the mustache, and the face. So, yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I would just... Even even if Pass. you are, if you want if you want to read your metal comics, they're still publishing Slain at two thousand AD. You know that there there's your dose of heavy metal comic right there. Although Pat Mills is sort of not there. I mean, visually, oh, Pat, Pat no, visually it's there. metal. Pat Visual- Mills is as Pat Mills as ever, Sean. Yeah, but it's like visually it's metal in terms of content and themes. It tends to be more like my. My goddess and the ecosystem and whatever. Well, right? Sean, so, obviously you have not listened to enough metal that my goddess and ecosystems describes twenty to thirty percent of European metal from the woo! late nineties till this day. Okay, we, okay. We, we love the environment, Sean. Accepted. You know, it's I the accept thing that, that we break when we play. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Uh, moving on, let's talk about the Lady actual, Castle number one. The actual oh. antithesis. If you put these two comics physically, oh god. Body, at the same one on top of the other, your room will explode. It, they will cancel each other out. So, Lady Castle number one by Delilah S. Dawson, art by Ashley A. Woods. Ashley A. Woods, not not the other Ashley Woods. No, not Ghost Rider twenty ninety nine Ashley Woods. You can actually make out shapes in this one. <laughs> so, okay, this this book was amusing with a caveat. So, the premise is that King Mancastle has left with. All of the men of the kingdom to find a husband for his daughter, Princess Ave, who sings every single line of dialogue. And that's hilarious because her younger sister, Gwyneth, is like, would you stop singing already? You sound crazy. And uh, Marinor, the blacksmith, is running the kingdom in the meantime. Uh, it turns out that the princess is sort of this dear Abby figure of the kingdom. She's locked up in that tower until her prince comes and saves her. And in the meantime, all of the women of the castle send her advice. What should we do? Should we do this? Should we do that? The well hag wants to know. Yeah. They have, like, someone whose job is to be a well hag. 
sure, thank you for your advice. The well hag sends her regards. And then uh, it turns out that a dragon has obliterated the king and most of their company with only one knight left. Now, he assumes that he's going to be king, but for some random reason, the Lady of the Lake turns up all of a sudden yep. and does the Excalibur thing, and the person who pulls the sword out of her hands is Marinor, the blacksmith. So she is therefore king. And now, now the kingdom, uh, the castle is constantly under attack by evil monsters because of a curse that they had yeah. when they fought the dragon wizard thing. Yeah. Now, here's where I had a problem, and it's a problem of tone versus implication mm-hmm. versus com- versus pacing. So, all of the men have been killed, including Marinor's husband. We know this because she says, my husband is dead. There isn't a single scene in this issue where the characters respond with anything that looks like mourning. Marinor, her reaction is just, well, men are dead, time to get it, time to get to work. And I understand that that's the hook of the story, right? The premise here is the women who were left behind uh, inherit the kingdom, essentially, and take it over and find new roles for themselves. Reverse fridging, as it were. Sure, sure. Perfectly fine. But the problem is that that complete lack of response seems off-putting somewhat. It makes the death of... I mean, to recap, all of these characters have now lost their husbands, fathers, sons, brothers, whatever, right? All the men are dead. Yep. And they don't react. And it was so weird to me to think of something like Why the Last Men, which granted is a completely different genre. But like, think of the impact that that has. And then compare it to the idea of they're all just, oh, now we're going to have, damn, I forgot the tea and I didn't bring the crumpets. But now we should have, let, let's start sewing and get, do, get a haircut. And- I do agree that it's a tone problem because there are parts of the book where the tone is like overtly comedic, uh, like it's a parody, the, yeah. The, which the I think scene, that, the, the the part in page two where the princess in the tower is imagining herself with an anarchy cake and yes. a snake like uh, whispering death in her ear. That like if if you're doing this kind of story, if you're doing like I, I hate fairyland type story, you know, then people acting blasé about death and destruction of their relatives is fine because the point is that it's a comedy and that everybody acts in a weird manner. But because Halfway through the issue, they're doing it like you go girl type story where, you know, we women have to learn to defend ourselves and only we will take care of ourselves. And they play that also yeah. very seriously. You've kind of, well, if you play that seriously, why isn't anybody reacting to the murder of all of their, all of the people they know? Exactly. It's, it takes, I think that's exactly the contradiction. It takes this very matter of fact approach for expediency's sake, at exactly the point where it should be slowing down to explore things a bit more deeply. Like, it does risk coming off as superficial because they don't, they just sort of, you get the sense that Dawson is just skipping over it because it's inconvenient and she doesn't have time. And granted, right, this is the patented boom for issue mini, and we have said very often that these projects will sometimes have pacing problems because of the way that they're designed. But this really did feel like there's a chunk of the plot just missing from the book. Now, that said, I did enjoy most of it. I have I am... words with the art, which is fine in the comedy scenes, but 
Why is the adult princess wearing a breastplate in this type of story? Why isn't she wearing a full body armor? In the fight mm-hmm. scenes, that's... Why? In that type of story of all things, everybody else has a full body armor. Yeah. Why, why is she dressed like that? That's just an odd design choice. And again, the drama scenes kind of work. The comedy scenes work a whole lot better in terms of, in terms of uh, artistic interpretation. Yeah, if this had been a completely wacky comedy, mm-hmm. then they wouldn't have even... What the, it, that's the thing. If, if this had been a comedy, they wouldn't have killed off the men. They would have like turned them to stone or something, right? Yeah. Like, do away with them in a way that does not imply that their entire lives have been destroyed, right? Or, or have them be blasé about the fact that, oh, well, the men are dead. Now we're free! It's like, no, you just... And it's not like they've all complained about being oppressed before. It's just, yeah. you know, they, they were because it's a medieval society, but it's not like, oh, we're, we live under the yoke of those evil men, and yeah. now they're, oh, we're free. No, it's just, man, it's it, bummer it, it, being fact, a woman, but, you know, in, yeah. in this time and place, but... Jeez. If you think about it, the contradiction here is even spelled out in the dialogue because in the very beginning, when Gwyneth is talking to Marinor about the fact that her sister is locked up in the tower, Marinor's response is sort of, you know, it's unfortunate, but the father really does mean well. He wants his daughter to marry someone that she loves and, you know, all of that. So we're not dealing with a patriarchy that is portrayed in story as being abusive or oppressive. So the fact that they all die out and then immediately, yeah, let's all go get cake. Yeah, I don't know. Either it, it either do like a curse where they're turned into stone and it, it's irreversible, or start it in a later date. Start it after they started with okay, the men have died. What do we do now? Like yeah, where where the reader can assume that the emotional response happened before page one. Exactly. Mm-hmm. If you want to skip past that point, that's fine. You don't have to. Like they could have just started with the dragon incinerating. Yeah, everyone. because because this would be like a major bomber having the characters deal with it, and it wouldn't fit the the bright tone of the book. But if you're doing it in the middle of the plot of your issue, somebody had to respond to it. Yeah. So that was really like my one big bugbear with this issue. Overall, I enjoyed it. I'm going to stick around for the entire miniseries. It's, it's okay. I might read the trade. I'm not super excited about it. Yeah, but it did. It did have that misstep right there. So, okay. Speaking of fantasy comedy, our last number one. Yes. So we are going to be reviewing Curse Words number one by Charles Soleil, art by Ryan Brown from Image. I cannot believe that this is like the only second or third Charles Soleil book we review, considering <laughs> considering he writes seven titles every month or so. Sure, but we don't read Marvel, so no. But know. he writes he writes for Oni and Image and Boom and everything. If if it's a publisher, Charles Soleil has wrote for it. <laughs> like the people at Valiant looking at their checks. Why are you sending a check for Charles Soleil? Oh, he, he doesn't wrote, work. He wrote a five issue mini for us. When <laughs> Wednesday. Oh, um, yeah, so we've talked about Soleil in the past, and there was no way that we were not going to review this book, because I think creator-owned Charles Soleil is always something that I find intriguing, Mm. and I have to admit that this comic took me on a bit of a journey. Uh, The plot? When I... Yeah, so go with the plot. Okay, we have... We're on Earth, you know, modern times, and we have an evil wizard named Wizard, with an O, 
is sent to our world by the by his evil overlord master to like prepare it for the invasion but after a while he's like you know what I'm, I, I like it here yeah this is a fun place they have hot dogs and celebrities and stuff and I enjoy it and he just decides to stick around becoming the world's like first wizard celebrity slash hero all yeah. the while being unside an utterly debauched individual like He's still an evil wizard, just one that likes the world as it is. Well, it's also worth pointing out that he was a slave. The thing that ends up winning him over to Earth is when he asks, you know, why is everybody just lounging about? The, the person says, well, you know, is, all is, free. Isn't the master, you know, isn't the master and he's like, what master? Yeah, we're all free. And then and he then says, he... Donald Trump. Uh, no, I'm sorry. No, no, no. I'm no. sorry. I'm sorry. Now, now you to. want me to have like acid reflux in the middle of the podcast, <laughs> but but yeah. So um, the whole point is is he was a servant of this evil overlord, right? Sizaji. Uh, mm-hmm. that, that's a mouthful. And he was sent to Earth to destroy it. But you know what he falls in love with is the idea that there are no masters on Earth. He can do whatever he wants. And he, uh, there's this great double page spread of, you know, he reveals himself to the world. He gets a talking koala named Margaret to be his PR agent. He becomes famous. Um, interesting stuff. And then in the present day, uh, he gets into a duel with another servant of Syzygy. Because the master lost all patience and he's like, well, somebody has to take care of that guy in this world. Yeah. So this comic really did take me on, when I say it took me on a journey, I mean, when I started, I felt like Soleil was racing through the exposition to the point where I didn't understand anything in the opening scene. I had no idea what was going on. It was bewildering. It was frustrating. And I didn't feel like I was going to be into it. Then you get the flashback sequence with Wizard's backstory. And I got a little more interested, right? I, I got a little more invested. I understood the concept. I understood in general what was happening. And then the last page twist really sold me on this book. Mm-hmm. Be- because a less skilled writer might have stopped at the point where Wizard's freedom makes him, if not a genuine hero, then at least someone who genuinely wants to help. It right? is someone... an extra long issue, by the way. Not like a 48 yeah. page or something, but there's like... 36, 35 pages of story. So it's it's an extra long series and it can take allow itself to take its time a bit. Yeah, fair enough. Um, so, uh, uh, again, it, it could have just stopped there, right? It could have just stopped as this liberated slave wants to do good deeds, the end. That's his character arc. And Soleil added an extra twist on the last page. When he, when Wizard is put in this compromising position, yeah, we're and, not, and we're reacts, not going to spoil. I'm not going to spoil it, and, but I'll say he reacts in a very specific way that made it a more interesting and complex portrayal right at the end. So up until that point, I was sort of, uh, I don't really know. I'm not really feeling it, and then the flashback sort of got me invested up to the point where I might have been willing to say, "I'll come back for the trade," right? Without committing. It was the last twist specifically that sold me on Curse Words. That I will be here for the remaining issues. Because the the double complexity of what he does at the end adds, I think, a lot of value to it. 
it's an interesting series, well, at least the first issue, because it seems it it it's based on a, on a corporation by two very different creators. Because Colin Bunn is, for me, a very human writer. He's very investment in the small-time drama of the people... Not Colin Bunn, sorry. Charles Soleil. I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry. He's a very human writer. He's very... It's important for, to him that the reader will be invested in the drama of the people involved in the story. He's a very character-based writer. While Ryan Brown is an artist, the guy who did I Hate Astronauts, he wrote and draw that one, is a very wild, off-the-cuff, you know, your... Dr. McNinja, ex-cop, kind of, let's do everything, let's make every gag possible, let's just <laughs> make it wild, make it crazy, kind yeah. of guy. And so those are two very different artistic approaches, and you think they would clash, but they kind of work. The idea that Wizard comes from a very odd and weird and wild place, and that he literally doesn't understand the concept of freedom and, and just not having a master... It works because he is, like, from from a brown world to a soleil world. Yeah. And I, I'm not... I have I like some... I really, I really like the issue overall. I have some issues with it. Like, you... I thought the beginning wasn't as great. Like, the gag with the... What is he supposed to be? Is it supposed to be, like, a... I think it's some kind of rock star. No, Justin... Was... Like, he's supposed to be, like, a Justin Bieber clone, right? Oh, God, that would make it so much more appropriate based on what happened to him at the end. Uh, yeah, because he, he keeps saying, I want to be platinum, I want to be yeah. platinum, I want to yeah, be platinum. Yeah, it's like a Justin Bieber clone gets his comeuppance, but yeah. it, it's kind of obvious to me as a gag, which is a problem with Ryan Brown comics. Yeah. Uh, but like you said, once it gets in, into rhythm proper, it's very, very good, and it looks great. I'm, yeah. not, I'm, not, I'm, not, as big, I'm not a big fan of Brown's storytelling in, in terms of writing, I am a big fan of his art. You know, he can he has it bent down, and it's yeah. You you have those big fights with with all lots of lightning and special effects thrown around, but he still keeps the storytelling very clear and obvious. Yeah, and I think the fact that Soleil is writing like it's not just Brown writing and, and drawing helps in this case because Soleil does manage to give it a more interesting story. Yeah, Brown what, what Brown I never really an actual journey within the first issue. Yeah. And, you know, Brown's storytelling, like, God Hates Astronauts, I was never never a huge fan of, because he doesn't necessarily have that clarity of communicating what his characters are thinking, you know, ma- making you care at all on any emotional level. So that much works for me, at least. Just, just and, for the great uh, look in page 17, where he has the flashback, where Wizard has the flashback to his own world, where while he's standing at the hot dog stand, and he has this far away look where, as the guy says everyone here is free as a bird and he has this look of oh free freedom free yeah. that's a word that's yeah. a that's a great moment that's that's, that's a really I, I, it's surprisingly human moment it is for a series about a, about an evil wizard with a tattoo of a pentagram on his chest doing stuff in New York for larks basically <laughs> yeah and like you said the twist is a, it's a great end of issue one twist. It's yeah. a real big moment of uh, moral complexity without spoiling anything almost as worthy as the twist at the end of Birthright, number one. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. So it's, it's good to read a good comic. Yeah, it's, it's, it's something that it's something we can both that agree it's a good comic because usually we argue at this point. 
Well, no, I, I think that, again, it's reflective of the actual material that's out there. Charles Soleil, we have always known as a reliable writer. Our problem, quote-unquote, is that he tends to be assigned to books that we wouldn't normally read or recommend or review. Mm-hmm. So the fact that he goes to Image and puts out a new number one, we are inclined to look at Image number ones anyway. That just allows us to get you know, access to his talent in a way that I I don't think that there was any scenario where either of us was going to hate this book because Sillet is a very good writer. Our issue is just, you know, he's finally writing something that we can actually commit to. I have no problem saying that I'll be back for more of this. So, yeah. Shall we go on to our Patriots and Trade review? Let's. Oh, Sean. I know you've been waiting you, you for this. You made me the happiest boy alive. <laughs> so, no, because see, we've talked about what's a metal comic earlier, and obviously, the most metal comic on your stands and in your in your computer right now is "Kill Six Billion Demons," written and drawn by Tom Parkinson Morgan, aka Abaddon. He even had a cool metal nickname. Uh, this uh, we're reviewing book one, which is a collection published by Image of the first year or so of the amazing fantasy webcomic about a sorority sister named Alison Roof who has her boyfriend kidnapped by an evil demon-looking monsters and finds her, her head implanted with a strange quasi-alien device which it turns out is a very, very powerful weapon and she's sort of sold away to the intrigues of this weird multiverse-type world which is one-third Hindu mythology one third death metal album and one third demonology. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I think why don't you start with this one because mm-hmm. I think you you have more to say about it than I do because um, I did have an issue. Uh, well, I have I have some issues with the story. Actually, the biggest issue I have with this book is the printing. You've read it only via the computer, right? Yeah. Digital. I have I yeah I've started reading for digital, but I bought the print edition when it came out because I'm a print guy, right? I love print. It's printed at like r- rather regular sized uh, pages, only okay. trimmed on the top because it's uh it's like a landscape format type comics. It's not a regular comic page type comic. Mm-hmm. But the, one of the reason I wanted it in print is because Parkinson's Morgan art is super detailed. And he makes every single page into like a menagerie of characters and details and world building. And there's always something in the background, in the foreground, in the sides. Certain pages yeah. have double digit number of characters doing double digit type of actions at the same time. And this is one of the things where I wanted them to do it. Just start with a big hardcover, super extra large version. Yeah. This is a comic that needs to be read in a great trim size. Or digitally. Well, my computer screen isn't that big. That's one of yeah, the problems. You need... Um, I don't know what the size of your computer screen. I never saw it. Is it. Do you have like a huge screen? Um, ish. Or, may, or maybe you just you hook it up to your TV. I don't know. Uh, well, I do hook it up to a television screen, but I don't think it's any larger than... Um, you know, it's ish. But of course, with digital, you can zoom in. Yeah, but I... It's, I, I I want to see the full page for effect. That's fair. I, I, That's it's, fair. Not, it's, one, it's not one of those comicsology things where just flowing in from panel to panel make it work. You need to see the full flow of the action because yeah. it is a webcomic and every page is its basically its own unit. Yeah. 
and every page you know something has to happen and in terms of plot this is very much a shell type story this is mostly world building and explanation Ruth is dragged around by this angel guy self-proclaimed angel at least who claims that he's there to save the world using the stuff in her head mm. and basically throughout the whole first trade she He just like this is place a what happens here is B and she's like what's happening I don't know and he's like this is place C stuff here happens in D and this is monster Z and she's like what's happening I don't know only towards the end does she become like a character on her own does she take action and sort of asserts herself yeah but this would have been a problem just doing world building would have been a problem if it wasn't one of the most amazing exercises that In world building I've ever saw not just in comics in any medium period I'm just fascinated by this world but by the thing that Parkinson Morgan is doing here I I would gladly spend like a whole other book just on explaining how things work and showing them to me I it's not like it's unlike anything else I've ever saw it's just beautiful to look at yeah um, okay mm-hmm. so I I think well first of all going with the obvious first yes the art is absolutely phenomenal okay Parkinson Morgan is a unique meticulous detailed exceptionally talented yeah, it's, it's, it's like a cross between Simon Roy to again someone like say Jeff Darrow yeah the, just on every single page there isn't a single page of this book that is dips in artistic quality that does not have some kind of weird imagery that doesn't do something amazing in terms of visual presentation. And it it's not just he has talent for details, he has great talent for character design. All of the monsters yeah. here are unique looking. Yes. And nothing single, is taken from a D&D monster manual. No, no. Every single demon looks uniquely designed. It looks like something that he created, right? Absolutely. The major obstacle for me here, and it was a sticking point unlike Lady Castle that I could not overcome, is that the writing made no sense to me. Uh-oh. I read this book twice, cover to cover. I can read English, so I, I know what words mean, but nothing about this made... I, I didn't understand what Alice was supposed to do. do I didn't understand the nature of this world I didn't understand the conflicts that were going on the fact that you you have that repetition of the end of kill six billion demons kill six billion demons I didn't understand why she had to do that like I think not, I, I, the point was that in the end that's like her new name like everybody everybody in that world has this super long name I am the binder of 82 chains in white or something like that. Yeah. And her name ends up being Kill Six Billion Demons. Uh, I don't know why. It's not that she, she doesn't kill Six Billion Demons well, in, the, she, in this book, would. at least. Yeah. So I don't... Again, like, it, it's an obstacle that I bump up against because for this book to have really hooked me, I would have needed clarity of story. Like, it would have been nice if he had been as detailed and clean and... careful with the story as he was with the art because yes every visual design is distinct and detailed and interesting and intricate and good to look at the story is a jumbled mess that I I couldn't follow it I, I, I disagree 
I was getting I was getting Ray Fox vibes here. Oh no, 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 no. yeah. Shame, That's what it shame. was like for me. I because I, I was reading it, and I'm, I I am telling you, I could not. I don't know what the story's about. I don't understand. The only thing that I got from that whole story is that, you know, uh, uh, somebody shows up in her room right when she's about to lose her virginity. Mm-hmm. That person gets his head cut off. Her boyfriend is abducted by other parties not related to this. The guy who got his head cut off inserts a key into her forehead that rips her apart somehow. She materializes in this other world and that's that's all I got. Like, I don't know. I, did, I didn't understand the dynamics between any of the characters. You didn't, you didn't, didn't understand the, po- the odd politics of this multidimensional reality type thing. Not in the least. And that's usually something that I can follow to some extent. I, right? Well, I've read it two times as well. And the first time around, I did have some problems. This, I don't know, when I reread it in preparation for this podcast, I had, some of it is intentionally obscure, but a lot of it is just, they basically tell you over this, you know, straight up into your face. In this world, you know, there was this God who created the universe and that guy died in the creation of our world and he created heaven and earth and the multiple realities. Therefore, And as he died, you know, certain deities just tried to take over creation. And now that now that even those deities are gone, the old the old gods, the new conquerors are, do not care for any order, and they basically disbanded the host of angels. And this guy that accompanies Ellison is loyal to the idea of the law, but nobody else is there to enforce it. So basically, everything is chaos and destruction. Hmm. And I really, I really like this idea because they have a t- totally different concept of gods and, you know, for him, this is earth. You know, he lives in reality and she, when she keeps on insisting, oh no, this is heaven or hell, he's like, what are you talking about? This is just a world. You know, there's yeah. like a million, there's like 777,777 worlds. Right. Um, I don't know. It just, it didn't. It didn't. It didn't click for me. It mm. didn't. It, there was something. It felt too obscure in terms of the progression. Maybe I need to read it a third time. I don't know. I I went over it twice, one after the other, but it just it didn't. Nothing about the way that the world is presented. Like obviously, all of the exposition is directed at Alice in an attempt to get us to receive that information as well. But I didn't feel that it did. I I kept bumping like I didn't understand what was she expected to do what was that key in her forehead why does she end up she goes back then then she's sitting with her roommates at some point and I, she has this I, the key they say straight on the key is the thing that opens gates between worlds and it's considered an uber powerful weapon that nobody should wield less less alone some lowly human who up until now wasn't even aware of the existence of this whole world outside our world And I, I really like the scenes at the end where she's like, she dropped into Earth and she has the chance to forget about everything. She has the chance to let it go and hopefully nobody else will know. And she, no, I have to find my boyfriend, even if he's a jerk. I have yeah. to go back to that world. And she starts. Which was also part of a problem, by the way. Like, oh. I didn't, f- I, the, her interaction with her boyfriend at the beginning is, is unconvincing because he's pressuring her, right? He is yeah. pushing her to, to have sex with him. And she is determined to lose her virginity, but she's terrified. 
And that is all you see of the boyfriend in terms of her emotional connection to him. So when her motive, when she presents her motivation at the end of the story as, you know, I have to go back and save him, it is unclear to me as to why. Because he was killed by evil demons, Sean. You don't, you don't have so, to be connected to someone to like fear for their soul and life when they're killed by evil demons. No, but in fictional terms, right? When we're talking about what's, a story that her, has... What's her motivation? Yeah. Well, it's not just saying well, no, him. Not, it's about she not can't ignore her, that world anymore. It's not about what's her motivation per se, but it's if you want me to believe that someone who is portrayed throughout the entire story as being thoroughly out of her depth, right? She does not instantly adapt to this role. No, no. So someone who is portrayed as out of her depth is given an out and decides to go back in. And she says, right, it's her. It's her explicit statement that she has to go back to save him, even though he's a dick. Mm -hmm. That's not convincing to me. That's something about that felt. Right. Even if it is something hard and the guy you saved is a dick. I don't know. that, That did not seem... Accurate to her characterization. I don't know. It it just didn't work for me. So you know, I, again, I, 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 I force it to have. I, no, 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 I I understand. Like we're we are going to no, disagree. No, but I on do. This I do one. understand why some people didn't like it because it is intentionally odd in the way it presents. Because on the, on the one end, the arc is very clear, and like I said, the story is pretty simple, right? It's the it's she, she she's the chosen one if she wants to or not. And she's taken to this odd reality. And at first she's very objectionable and like, what's going on? But then she discovers her powers and she becomes a hero, apparently, in book two or whatever. So in terms of storytelling, it's pretty simple. What is odd is because the way Parkinson builds this world and therefore builds his story, the construction of it and the way people react to things is so out of the ordinary. In the usual fantasy story, this cop angel guy would be just her mentor and her friend but instead of that being the the thing that happens they're not the odd couple she's terrified of him and he's not her friend he doesn't want to save her he wants to use her and they have all of those guilds and and other gods and other guilds and everybody's at cross purpose there is no single bad guy there's like a million things happening in policy terms around her so it's confusing to her and therefore it's confusing to the readers because your point of view character doesn't even get what's happening to her up until the last page. And even then she's like, sorta, kinda, I guess I know what's going on. Maybe. I guess. So I un- I understand why you're like mm, confused and annoyed by the structuring of it. Like, like, let me put it this way. This book would have won me over if the story had been constructed as well as its art. The, that imbalance, and I think like we may be disagreeing on, on the relative clarity of the story, but I think we can both agree that I, I, the, the art is much more carefully put together than the exposition and the story and the characterization. Maybe. I don't. I, I simply saying I don't think the story could have been put more clearly because part of the art and part of the whole essence of the series is this idea of confusion and oddness and being out there I I think you know he does in terms of storytelling he does exactly what he wants to do knowing that some people this would be off-putting to some people I don't think he's like I don't think it's a mistake it's not a bug it's a feature and I understand why this feature is not something that you approve of 
Why it's something that not many people yeah. would approve of. While being, at yeah. the same time, myself, totally ignored by it. And I, and just like when we've talked about Transformers versus G.I. Joe, or like, I totally get why people won't like it. Right. While at the same time being, this is exactly what I need. This is exactly what I want. Yes. This was That's built, fair. This was built for me. That's absolutely fair. You know, right. it, it's something where, and as with Transformers versus G.I. Joe, I acknowledge the technical aptitude. Parkinson Morgan, like Tom Scioli, right? This is very distinct art style, a very appealing mm-hmm. art style. It is not enough for me specifically as a reader to I, recommend I it. always prefer something which is a bit less, uh, you know, workable in terms of wide appeal. Like, for instance, yeah. Curse Words, which we both enjoyed, is something that I enjoy, but at the same time, I will never like as much as I like something like Kill Six Billion Demons or Transformers mm-hmm. vs. G.I. Joe or, say, even Motro. Because it is so, mm, not shallow, but it is very basic in terms of what it's doing. You know, even the interesting twist works within the realms of the genre. There is nothing new there. Mm. It's just a very well-executed story. And I think we had this discussion before. I often would prefer an interesting failure for successful, you know, been there, done that type of thing. That's fair. And for me, Kill Six Billion even isn't even a failure. So I'm I'm for it. And I, like I said, my biggest complaint is I, if you print it, print it in large. You know, do a hardcover. Do I I I don't even care to pay thirty bucks instead of fifteen that this thing costs. This mm-hmm. thing needs. I need to see everything. I need higher page quality and I need bigger size. You know. Okay. Um, well, since we ended on this agreement, shall we do our petited also, what else have you been reading quickly? No, I don't think that's no? necessary okay. here, because I will say that I think that of the three ongoings, uh, Curse Words was easily the best, I think. Oh, yeah, yeah. L- Lady Castle also had a particular flaw, but I still enjoyed it. So, overall, it was, you know, it was a win. Okay. So, this was it. This was another episode of the Smorgasbord. We hope you enjoyed it. If you want, previous episodes can be found as usual in Sequart, sequart.org. If you want me, I am on the Twitter at Tom Shops, T-O-M-S-H-A-P-S. And so, Sean is not on Twitter. You can throw a rock at his house if, you, if you're if you close <laughs> enough and you can attach like a little, you can write something on that rock like, hello, Sean. <laughs> no, why do you always have to go to violence? You smoke signals. It's more, you know, better chance of me responding. Okay. So, uh, yeah. Till next time. Bon, bon appétit. appétit.